in a book called Life at Home in the 21st Century. It was a 2012 book. I think that's the next slide. Uh, they researched how families, middle-class families in Los Angeles, spent their time. Now, they noted that, that a lot of construction companies that were building new houses uh, and even people that were just uh, remodeling and adding on and fixing up their houses, they, they paid a lot of attention to the backyards. Maybe a lot of us can relate to that. And, and they were adding new things, better things in the backyards, adding pools, nice furniture, gazebos, all kinds of wonderful, great stuff in the backyard so that they could spend time together as a family in their backyards. In fact, When these families talked to the researchers, they said, we spend a lot of time in our backyard. But the researchers, over a period of time, they observed the families and where and how they spent most of their time. And in spite of the fact that the family said, we spend lots of time in the backyard, they they noted that on average, the children were only in the backyard for about 40 minutes, less than 40 minutes a week. And adults were in the backyard less than 15 minutes a week on average. Which is kind of interesting, wasn't it? And the researchers noted that although we think we spend a lot of time together as a family, although we want to spend a lot of time together as a family, although we even invest in spending a lot of time together as a family, a lot of times we just don't. Can you relate to that? You just don't spend as much time as you would like to just being with your family, talking with your family, eating with your family, sharing time with your family. We're busy and we're going a lot of different directions. And, you know, I got to thinking about that. I thought if that's true for our immediate families and husbands aren't spending as much time with their wives as they would like to, as they want to, as they know that they should... Parents aren't spending as much time with their kids as they want to, as they know that they should. If that's true in our immediate families, how much more is it true in our church families? How much more is that true in our church families? How much time do you spend with other people in this room? In a given week, how much time do you spend together? How many times a week do you call somebody up and say, hey, let's grab lunch this week? How often do you text somebody and say, hey, can we get a cup of coffee this week? How often do you have somebody at your house? Or how often is your family having dinner at another family's house? Here's something I want us to think about this morning. That Sunday morning, this time together. And this is good, isn't it? That we set this time apart. This time on Sunday morning sets the stage for the rest of the week. It should set the stage for the rest of the week in lots of different ways, right? In in our focus, that we want to focus on Jesus, and so we come together, and we talk about Jesus, and we sing about Jesus, and we break the bread, and we drink the cup, remembering Jesus, and so we're setting the stage for a whole week. I'm going to think about Jesus this week. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus this week. I'm going to set my whole life to revolve around him this week, but it's also about family. It's also about this community. And when we come together in this room on Sunday mornings and we sing about and we talk about and we think about and we read about how we ought to be loving each other, that ought to set the stage for the week ahead where we say, I'm going to make this a priority. That's why things like life groups are so incredibly important to us here. 
Because it is impossible for us. You say, well, I, I, there's no way I can know 1,200 people. There's no way I can know everybody at McDermott Road. I've been at congregations of like 100, and there's no way they all know each other really well, right? You're never going to know everybody, but you need to know some people really well. And you need to let some people know you really well. And this intimate time together I mean, it's incredibly intimate, isn't it? I mean, we eat together. We share this meal. And yes, I realize it's a pinch and a, and a thimbleful, but it's a meal, isn't it? And it's intimate because we're, we're taking real food and real drink and we're sharing it together. And that ought to set the stage for the kind of things we do throughout the week. And we're singing together. I don't know about you, but... I. I'll never probably lead singing up here, okay? Because I don't necessarily want you all to hear me singing. It's, it's kind of intimate to allow somebody to hear you singing. But that's what we're doing together. Listening to and hearing each other and allowing ourselves to be heard singing these songs together. Sharing our heart with each other. That ought to set the stage for the rest of the week. See, Sunday morning, it shapes, it shapes our week, and it also shapes our lives. Yes, to focus on God. Yes, to focus on Jesus. Yes, to dig into the scriptures, but also to spend time together as a family. And as we go throughout our week, if we start it this way, maybe, maybe we'll begin to think, I need to make more time for my brothers. I need to make more time for my sisters. I need to make more time for my family to break bread with other families from church. I need to practice loving my brothers and my sisters. And so the text that we've been looking at last week and this week, and that we'll look at again next week, is from John chapter 13, and it's the Last Supper. Again, breaking bread. And, and really, the scene we have in our head might be from like the, the Last Supper painting, you know, Da Vinci, you know, all the the apostles sitting on either side of Jesus, this long table, all sitting in chairs. But we realize that's not really an accurate portrayal, right? That's not really what it looked like. That's not how they ate at that time and place. They didn't eat in chairs at long tables. They were reclining. They were laying down, kind of propped up on one elbow, right, around this table. It was an incredibly intimate time. Jesus had washed their feet They were eating and they were drinking, they were talking, they were sharing. This, this is what community is supposed to look like. This is what family is supposed to look like. This is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what Jesus was setting up and establishing. This kind of brotherly relationships. And he's telling them, love each other, serve each other, wash each other's feet. It's a beautiful, harmonious moment, isn't it? But there's a snake in the garden, right? There's a snake in the garden. In the midst of the love, in the midst of the service, in the midst of the self-sacrifice, in the midst of do this for one another, there's a snake in the garden. And his name is Judas. And and John's been hinting all along that that Judas is going to betray Jesus. Look at some of the passages that we've already read as we've read through John. John 6, verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. 
He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And then in John chapter 12, and verse 3, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Verse 6, he said to this, or he said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a, what? A thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You see, sometimes, I picture that scene. Judas and 11 others and Jesus lying there around the table, eating, drinking, sharing, talking, laughing, I imagine, being brothers, and Jesus knowing one of them, Judas, was a snake in the garden, and he was going to betray him. But we often think about Jesus or Judas betraying Jesus, but do we ever stop and think Judas also betrayed the other 11? I mean, these were men that he, he, he traveled with, you ever traveled with somebody? I mean, you either love them or you hate them afterwards, right? I mean, and that's in a car, right? These guys were walking and walking and walking for three years, taking every meal together, sharing everything. But instead of laying down his life for his brothers, he was selling his brothers out. Instead of washing his brothers' feet, he was stealing from them. He was a thief, and he was a liar, and he was a betrayer. And he was betraying his his family that Jesus was setting up. Look at John 13. Here's our text, verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, after Jesus had taken the morsel and given it to Judas, Satan entered into him, into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are doing, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, John, if you've been reading through John with us and if you've read the epistles of John, you know that John loves contrast. He loves to draw stark contrast. He loves light and dark imagery, day and night Good and evil. And he's drawing a contrast here. Love and hate. Devotion and betrayal. Service, selflessness, and selfishness. Judas's betrayal is in stark contrast with the type of love that Jesus is not only demonstrating, but the type of love that Jesus is commanding of his followers. And I think, especially because we're going to look at 1 John in a second, that John wants us to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, which one are you? Are you someone who's following the commandments and the example of Jesus to selflessly love and give yourself up for your brothers? Or do you hate your brothers and you're betraying them? 
And you say, well, it's not that easy. It's not that black and white. It's not that stark contrast. No, no, no. But John wants us to look at it and ask those questions. We have to examine ourselves in that light. Do I love my brothers or do I hate them? Am I laying down my life for my brothers? Or am I just looking out for number one? Am I washing their feet? Or am I robbing them blind? Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. It, it strikes me the similarity between the next few chapters, especially right here, and the Great Commission in like Matthew chapter 28. You remember Matthew chapter 28? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? And, and here he's talking about that God is going to glorify him, which means to give him authority, All authority in heaven and on earth will be given to Jesus. He is glorified in the Father, and the Father is going to glorify him. And so there's the authority. But but here in John's account, instead of saying, go and make disciples, he just says, go and love one another. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this. By this, this radical, otherworldly, supernatural, atypical love that you, my followers, have for each other, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is setting up a new kind of humanity, a new kind of community. One where two members of the community aren't just partners, they're family. One where the two members of the community don't just work together, they love each other. They love each other. Look at what he says. Love one another, how? As I have loved you. You mean washing each other's feet, right? Well, yeah, that, that he's just demonstrated, but what he's about to demonstrate in the cross. Love one another that way. And do you see the contrast with Judas? Here's Judas, and John is telling us this story. The the apostles, they don't know that Judas is going to betray Jesus. They don't know he left to go do that exact purpose. But that's what's happening. And John is helping us to see that contrast. You're either a Judas or you're walking like Jesus wants you to walk. You're either betraying the community and the family by not loving them or you're loving them as Jesus told you to love them. Look at 1 John chapter 3, because I think this is a great commentary on what we're reading here. So John's letter, his epistle, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 11, John writes this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should, what? Love one another. We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And we want to we wanna make like a lot of gray area in there, don't we? We're like, John, come on, man. I mean, get real, right? You're saying I either love like Jesus wants me to love or I'm Cain who killed his brother Abel? I'm either a murderer or I'm a lover? I either love or I hate and murder? Isn't there some like gray area in there? John wants you to see that stark contrast. He wants us to see it that way so that we really examine ourselves. So we have this sort of moment of truth and we say, which way are you going to go? Doesn't mean we're going to love perfectly. But you have to decide which way will you live? To what kind of a lifestyle will you be committed? A lifestyle that's just like everybody else that loves those that love them. Remember Jesus said, listen, you love those that love you. Big deal. Everybody does that. Everybody loves the people that love them. Everybody loves the people that are easy to love. Everybody loves the people that are easy to get along with. Everybody loves like that. I'm calling you to love like me. To wash the feet of the men you know will betray you and stab you in the back. I'm calling you to lay down your life for one another. And John wants us to see you got to choose one lifestyle or another. Verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love still remains in death. You know you've... You know you've changed. You know you've been converted. You know you've been transformed. You know something is happening in you. Not not like with a warm, tingly feeling in your heart. I mean, that's great. I love warm, tingly feelings in my heart. I mean, that's fantastic. But whether or not you love, and love's not a feeling so much as it is an action, a behavior, For John, and all throughout John's epistle, all throughout this letter right here, John will say, listen, there's two things. Believe in Jesus and love the brothers, right? Stop living like you were living and love the brothers and believe in Jesus. That's it. Confess that Jesus has come in the flesh and love the brothers. It's that simple. It's like Jesus would say, two things. Love God, love your neighbor, right? Love is hard sometimes, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to come across like we're loving. It's, it's easy to give an illusion of loving. I mean, it's easy to share something on Facebook that says you love your neighbor, but it's hard to really love the people that are hard to get along with. So he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, I know it's a stark contrast, but he wants us to see it that way. You've got to decide. Love and life, hate and death. Which way are you going to go? Love and life or hate and death? You've got to decide. 
Which way will you walk? Which way will you live? Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I want to I ask ourselves this question. How do we love as Jesus loved? Especially looking there at verses 17 and 18. How do we love as he loved? Three things I think we can draw from there. Number one, he says, he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what does it mean to love as Jesus loved? It means that we lay down our lives for each other. Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. We talked about this last week. He, he says it this way. He says, consider others as more significant than yourselves. Consider others to be your superior and look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. It's normal. It's normal to look out for your own interests. It's normal, it's average, it's ordinary. Nothing could be more ordinary in the world than taking care of yourself. If you're hungry, you give yourself food to eat. If you're cold, you wrap a blanket around yourself. If you're lonely, you go find somebody to spend time with. And Jesus teaches us, get outside of your own head and love other people that way. Love them as you would love yourself. Do for them what you wish somebody would do for you. In fact, so much so that you're willing to lay down your life for them. But here's the thing. I mean, it's really easy to say things like, I'd take a bullet for that guy. I love that guy so much, I'd take a bullet for him. I'd lay down my life for that guy. I love that guy so much, I'd swap my life for his in a heartbeat. Yeah, Great, wonderful, but would you live for him? It's one thing to say, I I would lay down my life for that person, but if you won't even have coffee with them, do you? you? If you don't even have lunch with them, do you? If you don't make time for them, do you? I know we're incredibly busy people, but we make time for the things that are a priority for us, don't we? How much Netflix do we watch? How much time do we spend on social media? How many books have we read? How much time do we spend with our brothers and sisters in Christ? How often do we say, let's have lunch this week? Let's have coffee this week? Hey, why why don't you and the family come by the house this week? How often are we spending time with each other? I mean, when Jesus loved us, he didn't just give his life. I mean, it wasn't like he just came down, gave his life, and went back up. He came down and spent 33 years with us. He dwelt with us. And he laid down his life for us. And Jesus calls us to imitate that love. And then then John says, if anyone has the world's goods and yet closes his heart to his brother. So what's the opposite of closing your heart? Opening your heart, right? So number two, we have to open up our hearts. We have to lay down our lives. We have to open up our hearts. What does that mean, open up your heart? Well, think about what it means to close your heart. You see somebody in need and you say, I don't care. 
I don't care. That's your problem. That's not my problem. I could help you, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to help you. And you close your heart. It means I'm not going to feel. I'm not going to feel anything towards that. I'm going to be apathetic. And, and we can, can't we? And oh, life, life has a way of making us sort of apathetic, doesn't it? Sort of calloused. Sort of skeptical and say, I just, I just don't care anymore. I just, I just can't feel anything towards, just, just can't. And we just sort of close our heart after a while. And Jesus invites us into a lifestyle where we open up our heart to each other. Where we say, I'm willing to care about your problems. I'm willing to feel about your problems the way I feel about my problems. And we can't, we can't literally do that to the whole world, but you could do that to a dozen people, couldn't you? You could be a part of a small, intimate group of people and you're actively, intentionally opening up your heart to them, letting them know what's going on in your life and the problems that you have and what you're struggling with because that's hard too, isn't it? To open up your heart that way and to let people care and to let people in and let people know what's going on with you, but also to let them in and let their problems into your life and care about their problems the way you care about your problems and take on their burdens the way you've taken on your own burdens. Bear one another's burdens, Paul says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Number three, love in deed and in truth. You remember what we've been saying about the word truth in the book of John? It's about reality versus what? Illusion. It's it's easy to, to give the illusion of being loving, right? To say, oh, I love you so much. Be warmed and well-fed. You have a problem. Oh, your problem is on my heart. I'll be praying for you, and I care about you. Oh, I really care. I really do. I mean, it's really easy to say those kinds of things, isn't it? But John says that's that's not enough to say you care, to say you love. You have to love in deed and in truth. You have to love in reality. Sometimes that looks like washing each other's feet. Sometimes that means rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty. Sometimes that means helping somebody move or cleaning someone's bathroom. Or sometimes it looks like feeding someone. Sometimes it looks like all kinds of things. Love in deed and in truth. But one of, our, one of our situations in the world we live in is that we've just, it isn't that we don't want to, it's just that we've retreated so much into our own little bubble that we, we don't even know what's going on in each other's lives. If we're going to care for each other and love each other and help each other and serve each other, lay down our lives for one another, open up our hearts and love and deed and in truth, and we have to spend time together. So here's our moment of truth question. What if everyone here loved the church exactly like you love the church? For some of us, it would be great. And for some of us, maybe not so much. What if everyone was as generous with the church as you are? What if everyone was as devoted to the church family as you are? What if everyone spent as much time with the church family as you do? 
I mean, for some of you, that, that's like, hey, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome. I wish everybody was as devoted and as generous and as loving and as whatever as you have been. Keep doing what you're doing. And for some of us, we look at that question and we think, I, I should be doing more. If everybody loved the church like I love the church, we'd be in pretty bad shape. And some of us look and say, I'm really not doing anything to love the church. And if everybody loved the church like I love the church, the church would just fall apart. Jesus invites us into a lifestyle, a lifestyle of loving one another as he has loved us. Is it hard? Sure, sometimes it's hard. But I'll tell you, the benefits are out of this world. The benefits are unbelievable. To be a part of a family who would lay down their life for you, to be a part of a family who would give anything for you, for, to be a part of a family who loves you the way they love themselves, who would do for you what they do for themselves. When you're hungry, they want to feed you. When you're cold, they want to wrap a blanket around you. When you're lonely, they want to rush to cheer you up and to love you. You can't put a price on that type of a lifestyle. You can't put a price on that type of a life. And that's the life to which Jesus is inviting us. Into a community where everyone, where everyone loves like that. Into a community where everyone cares like that. Into a community where everyone's devoted like that. And you say, Wes, that's not realistic. Not everybody's going to. That's true, maybe. But you can right? You're the only person that you can control. You can love like that. You can accept Jesus' invitation to love one another as he has loved you. Accepting that invitation starts at baptism, but then it's a daily thing, isn't it? Where we say this week, today, I will take up my cross. I will follow Jesus. I will love my brothers and sisters as Jesus has loved me because by this, all people will know that we are his followers if we have love for one another. So maybe there's somebody this morning and you're ready to accept Jesus' invitation by being baptized into him. Or maybe you just need prayers. Maybe you think, maybe you think they don't really love like Wes is saying. They wouldn't love me if they knew what was going on. Try us. Try us. Go visit with our shepherds after service. Tell them what's going on in your life. Let them pray with you. Let them hug you. Let them, let them reassure you. Let them help you. Let them love you. Or right now, come forward as we stand and sing this song.